Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse, Golf Monthly's weekly look at the various different events around the world in golf. Today we chat to Scotty Cameron and ask if Daniel Berger can win a major. Hi, this is Scotty Cameron. You are listening to the Golf Monthly Clubhouse podcast. Hope you enjoy. The Clubhouse is brought to you in association with Titleist, the number one ball in golf. For more, visit titleist.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse. My name is Tom Clark and this week I am joined by Elliot Heath for a change. How are you doing, Elliot? Hey, Tom. Yeah, good, thanks. Sun is shining now. Snow is gone. I can kind of see golf on the horizon. So, uh, yeah, I'm doing okay. How are you? All right. Is the sun shining where you are? In Hampshire? Yeah, it's beautiful in Surrey. It's dreary in Essex. I'll be honest with you. It's been pouring with rain. I'm looking out my window. I can see, what can I see? I can see a window cleaner running past with a, with a ladder. But he's a bit cold. But um, no, it's pretty dreary. But the, the, the snow does seem to have uh, disappeared with a big shower last night so um that's that's a good thing and there is maybe some good news as you say about golf returning there was a, a report in the sunday times yesterday saying that golf in england could return by the end of march that's exciting isn't it yeah i think the report is kind of that it will return well that's a good thing but for two balls which i'm actually quite disappointed by because i thought that it'd be the rule of six and four balls would be back but um yeah i'm starting to get very angry like at the weekend I went to uh, a certain lake in my county and it was just so busy the car park must have had over 100 cars and as you go in through like this little funnel area it's just people everywhere there was people like queuing up for burgers and coffees and even my girlfriend said who's not a sure she's kind of got into golf but not a golfer at all really she was like yeah this is stupid golf should be allowed like I don't know how big a golf course is, 100 acres or whatever, and there'd be about 100 people on it. But this place, it was just so cramped. Uh, and, yeah, it's just it's been really silly. I, I'm a little bit angry at that, and, uh, yeah, just can't wait for golf to return now. Yeah, it is tricky. I mean, I think we're all feeling it a bit, aren't we? And it, it, there is frustrating things out there, you know, when you do go to a park or something like that to go and exercise and you see there's loads of people there, which is fine. I don't blame the people. I think uh, what annoys me more, most is when people start blaming each other for being out, going out and exercising, which is completely within rules. And that's what we all want to do. It's just a bit of frustration because we know that actually on a golf course, you would be near a lot fewer people and um, probably be a bit safer. But um Let's let's just. I think we need to stay positive as much as we can around it. And if there is news that sport could be returning, not just golf, um, but other sports as well. And as you say, it does sound like there's good news on the horizon. We'll wait and see whether that actually appears because we've had hopes and dreams dashed different times over the last eighteen months or whatever it is. And um, so we'll, we'll just have to keep an eye on, eye on everything. Um, but fingers crossed, fingers crossed we play. I mean, some of the golf courses probably wouldn't be open anyway, would they, at the moment? Uh, they, they'd be open today down here, I reckon. And like throughout January, they would have been open for, for most of it in certain parts of the country. And it's just annoying. Like these burger vans in these places just must be making like record profits and halfway huts and um, takeaway services at golf clubs have just been absolutely annihilated. So yeah, I just don't think it's fair and looking forward to this period being over. Don't take it out in the burger vans. They're just, <laughs> they're just trying to make some money themselves, I think. You know, I know it is frustrating, but I don't, yeah, let the, don't take it out in burgers ever. I love a burger. <laughs> so, and uh, I think this could be the best segue ever to another burger who uh, <laughs> <laughs> had a very good weekend. Um, uh, <laughs> and he wasn't selling anything at all. Uh, he was earning a lot of money and winning. His fourth PGA Tour title, and that was Daniel Berger, who won by two at the Pebble Beach Prime after a stunning eagle at the last. The American now has four PGA Tour wins and he's back up to 13th in the world. And there's this great quote from him afterwards. I'm just trying to get better in every aspect of my game, and I feel like I've accomplished that. And I've set some really high goals, and I feel like I'm not scared to put in the work. I'm not the most talented guy out here. I don't hit it the furthest, but I'll outwork anybody. 
So that's a great uh, motivational quote there from Daniel Berger. So what do you think are the big goals that he's setting? Is it the majors, Ryder Cup debut? What, what do you think? Yeah, that's a fantastic quote. I love that. And yeah, where he says about these really high goals, I mean, you assume that they must be majors. They must be his Ryder Cup debut. I mean, he's 13th in the world now. He would back himself to outwork anybody. So I'm sure he would back himself to, to win a major. And yeah, get on the Ryder Cup team as well. Can he win a major? Uh, I definitely think he can. He's still young. Really good player when he's on form. I mean, the way he won that last night was fantastic. And, and the way he won the, the Charles Schwab Challenge last year was really good as well. Uh, obviously, he had a couple of years sort of in the wilderness. But it's great to see him back. Like you said there, he's not the most talented. He's got uh, a fairly strange-looking backswing, to say the least. But it's all about getting the ball in the hole, and he's very good at that. Uh, clearly good under pressure as well. Um, so, yeah, good to have him back. I'd take his swing any day of the week. Um, yeah, me too. Uh, he's playing very, very well. It's strange he actually had a missed cut last week at, in Phoenix, but he's actually that's his third top 10 in his last four starts and, of course, a win. And I mean, last year, let's look, he had seven top 10s in a win. I mean, he's playing very well, very, very solid. Uh, uh, best ever ranking is 12th, and uh, he's now 13th. And, uh, you know, I think he's he's going to be – he should be in the the Ryder Cup team. He's the kind of person I think would do very well in the Ryder Cup um, because he seems to be very motivated and and uh, would really uh, inspire the rest of his teammates as well. So I think he's a very good player. I mean, can he win a major? He's got the game, hasn't he? But, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot of people who, who we could say could win a major, aren't there? Yeah, he also uh, played in the final group of the 2018 US Open, if you remember. I think mm. was that Shinnecock Hills where they completely lost the course on the Saturday and uh, him and Tony Finau went out like first and shot 67s and then uh, basically everybody went backwards. So, I mean, he's got good experience playing in the final group there. He's got a top 10 at the Masters as well. Uh, yeah, I really like him. So I'm going to be willing him on. Played in the President's Cup as well, so... Clearly a very accomplished player who can, um, yeah, stick around for quite a while, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. And someone else who could be making the Ryder Cup team and could be doing well again this year is Jordan Spieth. So let's face it, he has recorded his second consecutive top four finish on the PJ Tour, which is, which is brilliant compared to what he was doing last year um, and in recent times. But... He was holding the 54-hole lead again, um, and he faded away. But are we being slightly too negative on it? I think, should we be looking at the improvement that, improvements that he has made rather than what he hasn't been able to get over the line with? Yeah, of course. I mean, last week, Brooks Kepka went out and won that tournament. This week, Daniel Berger did the same. I think Nate Lashley was up there as well. And uh, I don't know how much money he spent on the 16th green, but it was probably more than half a million dollars, which was... Uh, yeah, very painful to watch. But, uh, yeah, it's just been great to see Spieth back. Again, a bit like Daniel Berger, I guess. He's not the most talented player out there. When you look at his golf swing, he's um, wayward off the tee at times. But, yeah, it's all about getting the ball in the hole. And, and Jordan Spieth, over the past decade, has done that better than most people. <sighs> I mean, he's he's basically achieved everything in the game already. And he had done by the age of 25. I'd love to see him back in the Ryder Cup. I'd love to see him back up the top. But I, I don't know. I just do feel that the game keeps moving on tee to green where that's really his weakness. So I can't really see him getting back to the heights that he was when there's just so much competition now. But uh, yeah, I can definitely see him getting in the Ryder Cup team and, and winning tournaments again. I think, I think let's face it, he, he does seem to have turned his form round. He was very solid. I mean, he didn't get it done yesterday, but he didn't blow up he shot 70 didn't he you know he didn't completely he didn't shoot a 78 or something like that you know he played four rounds of solid golf um, and that's been his his issue is that actually he's played quite a lot of good tournaments but there's always been one horrendous round in there where he just his short game can't get him out of the trouble that he's his long game is putting in but he's he's started climbing i mean three what two three weeks ago he was 92nd in the world and he was dropping out the top 100 he was going to be gone outside the top 100 he's now gone tied fourth tied third and now he's back up to 62nd in the world um and he's looks to be maybe enjoying the the game a bit more as well so um i wouldn't be surprised if we uh, see him and you know i think 
I'm going to be looking at what his odds are for the Masters already because he's. we know how well he can play it around Augusta. Let me look at them right now, live. Live odds checking. You can get him, you know, no no wonder he has dropped in price quite a lot, but you can get him, it looks at around 25 to 1. So, you know, that's pretty decent value at the moment. If he continues on this on this trajectory, then he's going to be someone to look out for Augusta where he's had a lot of success, of course. Um, yeah, he's he's not getting back to world number one though, is he? Well, no one is because DJ's miles clear. So um, you know, yeah, he'd have to win a, probably a couple of majors to get him near the world number one at the moment. So, uh, um, but yeah, that's I think he's he, that's that's a goal down the road. You know, he's he just wants to win another tournament, and um, it's been a long time since he since he has been almost what, what three four years. So um, it's. A long time so yeah, i saw a, a fascinating stat as well from nosferatu on twitter the official world golf ranking guru and spieth along with daniel burgers and the justin thomas were sort of the, like the class of 2011 coming out of college and since spieth's last win jt's won nine times showflay's won four times burgers won twice and obviously spieth is still searching for another victory so um i think that's just evidence there of, of players overtaking him so still got such a long way to go to get back to where he was but uh it's so fun watching him i mean he's such a big name like every time he's up there social media is just going wild and uh yeah he's a very likable chap isn't he yeah definitely definitely it was a bit of an odd pebble beach prime it's usually raucous there's usually huge crowds there's celebrities playing with the pros obviously fantastic golf course that they play the final round on all the golf courses are amazing how did you find it to watch? Did you find it a bit weird? Was it better without the celebs, for example? It was 25 million times better. Just um, watching the world's best take on one of the world's best golf courses in a serious golf competition was, yeah, brilliant. It was um, without the distractions of the celebrities. It was without all the, the team format leaderboards popping up and silly shots and slow play yeah it was um so much better for me and i'd love to see pebble beach just host a, a normal professional tournament every year but i don't think it will because obviously it's such a big thing but yeah i um, certainly didn't miss the celebrities and I, I don't think many people will have done I'll, I'll play devil's advocate with you elliot and say um i agree with you that it was it was good to see the course and it, and, and it being just fresh but it is nice to see some of these guys sometimes. I remember Justin Timberlake playing with Justin Rose and actually playing better than Justin Rose. Um, I know that doesn't always ha always happen, but um, uh, it's it's also it's about obviously about a social thing down in that area of the world, um, and, and they obviously raise a bit of money and stuff like that for charity. So, um, but I do get your point. There's a few things which were better, especially the slow play. So, uh, but we'll wait and see whether there will be the celebs and the big. The big crowds and all that next year. Let's hope so. Um, moving on, last week there was another big announcement from the PA of America who said that rangefinders would be allowed in its majors to help with the flow of play. Now, there's been a mixed reaction to this news, but here's what veteran European tour caddy Sean McDonough told us. I, I just, just read their statement this morning and it, you know, I get what they're saying that you know it's been in, in amateur golf and, and it certainly helps in amateur golf and speeds play up in amateur golf but it's it's 100% going to slow play down in the, in the professional game and there's no two ways about it because the, the pin is obviously the pin number is obviously quite important but out of all the numbers we give them it's probably one of the least important numbers you know so you know if the pins you know so if you're playing a links course and the pins 175 yards away and the greens rock hard and there's a slope 25 yards short of it the pin numbers becomes irrelevant they're going to want to know you know where do i need to pitch this the pitch number is so important for these guys so where do i need to pitch this to get it to where we want it to finish blaze is not going to tell you that so that's that's irrelevant really i mean if, you, if you're pitching it 25 yards short the pro's going to want to know where's the where's the down slope at 150 you say well it's 155 to hit the down slope and i go okay so that's where we want to pitch it whether it releases out of 175 or 185 or whatever, it's, you know, the, the, the laser's not going to tell you that. And also, like I said on that tweet, no one's going to hit the laser once. There'll be 100 volunteers behind the green or grandstands and, you know, they're not going to hit it once. They're going to hit it three or four times to check whether they've actually got the flag. 
So some interesting insights there from someone who's absolutely, you know, could be completely impacted by this decision. And he said it's 100% going to slow down the play when it's supposed to be, you know, getting it flowing. What do you think, Elliot? Yeah, I, I can't really say it any better than what a professional caddy said. I, I remember speaking to Kyle Rodley last year on the podcast. Uh, I'd recommend going back to listen to that as well because he's a, a very entertaining guy. And, and he basically said similar that, these professionals are, are too good for rangefinders. They need to know numbers to the front, to the middle, to the back, to the bunker. They they need to know all sorts that, you know, not a slight on rangefinders, but rangefinders can't do that stuff. Rangefinders are great for us amateurs. They speed up the play for us. But when the pros have these detailed books and yardage charts and everything, yeah, they're, they're just not needed, I don't think. I would say I was in the, the camp that thought they would speed up play until I spoke to Kyle Rody last year. And just hearing this just validates it, that the caddies aren't interested in them, so I don't think they're going to make any difference. I, I think I think, so. I think a point's been kind of missed on this, to be honest with you, because this isn't saying that it's replacing what the caddies already do. That's I think that's been completely forgotten. Whereas... I think, and I think that's maybe the angle that Sean seemed to be coming from. The whole point is it's supposed to help add to that. So they're still going to be pacing off. They're still going to be doing all that in the pre-practice rounds for all the all the tournaments. They're still going to be doing all this and getting the yardages sorted for around the greens and stuff like that. They will still have that. It's I think where it's going to really help and it might speed up is if they're completely offline and they haven't got yardages. The one that I always, obviously the one is the Spieth one at, at, uh, at Burtdale when he was miles off and they didn't have a clue how the yardage or anything like that, where actually they could now get, you know, a laser onto the pin and actually that could help with speed of play because at that point they're only going to be saying, right, how far is it to, to anywhere? So I, I'm... Let's. I'm. I'm in the camp where actually I don't think it will harm it because I think all the things which are happening at the moment will still happen. I don't think this is going to be an added thing on onto it. I think it might just help when they need it when they're offline or something like that. Um, maybe I'm talking rubbish. I'm not a caddy, but uh, it'd be interesting to see how it goes. So when's the first time that we're going to see this? Uh, in the PJ Championship in May at Kiowa Island. Yeah, so that should that should be great, and um, we'll wait and see how that happens. I mean, Kiowa Island is a fantastic golf course, and I'm just looking forward to seeing more great golf. To be honest with you, but um, this will be an interesting side, and it'll be interesting to see who uses what laser as well, won't it? <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that Bushnell will be getting quite a lot of uh, coverage out of this, and I don't know if it's a sponsorship thing or if the PGA of America actually do believe that it will speed up play. But yeah, I think you're right. Perhaps it's good just to have another option in the bag um will they be getting used much i don't know but i guess there's no harm in allowing them that's it that's it i think i think actually i i, I have a feeling we won't actually see them very much but we'll wait and see and if we don't see them very much then actually then what's the what's the harm in having them I yeah exactly yeah. you know if they're actually not really making that much of a difference but anyway we'll wait and see how that um that um happens and um we'll we look forward to seeing that which only a few months away to the pga now, our main part of the podcast today, Elliot, you sat down with the legendary putter maker, Scotty Cameron. When was this? Last week? And you had a good chat about his new Phantom X models, about how he got into putter design and much, much more. So do sit down and enjoy this really cracking interview that Elliot did with Scotty Cameron. Hello, Scotty Cameron. Thanks for joining us on the Golf Monthly Clubhouse podcast. For 2021, we've just released four new models to the Phantom X line. Firstly, if you just want to start, how did you choose those new models? And um, I understand there was some tour player feedback. Yes, Elliot, the line extension. So it's not a new line. I didn't want to bring a new line yet because honestly, with COVID, we are in a strange time where a lot of people playing golf, but a lot of shops not open. So I wanted the sell through in the shop so we didn't bombard them with a brand new line. So simply I took the line and which of the Phantoms are selling best and being used on tour and took those best sellers and added to them, modified them, but kept that basic shape like the X5 for Justin Thomas. So four new models. So they're the same head. So there's actually two models with two different styles of necks. So kept it super simple and we've 
had these products on the PGA Tour here for a few weeks now, and a lot of the things I made the changes to were asked for by them, and it has been very successful the start of showing on the PGA Tour, which always leads into probably will be great in the market also. Right. So uh, the new neck designs, is that all about delivery and stroke arc and things like that? It is. Um, you know, the different style of necks creates different, uh, we call it toe flow. Uh, when you're, uh, whether you like square to square or you like a slight arc or you like more of an arc, we always have those three basics in the line. So just trying to understand or, or what you do with a putter. Do you like an arc? Do you like it straight back, straight through? And in this line, we have a shaft configuration, head configuration for everybody. Right. Is that the way you think putter design is going in the future then for that uh, custom fit element where I guess every single golfer needs, needs a putter for them and their stroke? You know, you don't have to be fit. That's not, you don't have to be fit for a driver or you don't have to be fit for clubs, but you're so much better off simply understanding what you need and what works with you. And for example, what kind of stroke? Some people might say, you know, I just take it back and straight through. We can understand putters that work with you or work against you. And, and there's no doubt about that. Some people have putters that work against them. So it makes it very difficult to have a great stroke or the length of the putters too long and you stand back and the toe goes up and with your eye so far away from the ball because it's too long now your path gets affected so to be fit is great it's it's you're better off if you do but you don't have to but also determine what is your style of putting are you an arc or, or are you more square to square then choose a putter around what you do with it right see so, yeah, most people will will know you for your brilliant blade putters but um with the mallets, do you get to be a little bit more creative? No doubt about that, Elliot. Um, reason, you know, when I do a Newport or a Newport 2, we did the special select, um, a new line in January 20. And super successful. But when you do a Newport or a Newport 2, it has to look like that. You know, if I get too far away from that, people question me like, well, it's not really that any longer, but on a mallet, being a larger head, I can basically have a blank canvas. I'm big into mallets and MOI, so a much easier moment of inertia. So when off-center hits, it's more forgiving. But mallets definitely give me a bigger canvas to do things that I can't do on a blade like a Newport 2. Yeah, do you uh, sit up at night sketching new designs and things? Because uh, there's just so many shapes, isn't there, in the market? There is. And I, you know, you can go for classic shapes like I did early on the uh, early Ray Cook putters mm, 32 years ago. And I've done a lot of mallets. You have a classic mallet and you have now these high tech mallets, which I think we are the innovators of, of the Futura way back when, when, uh, if you remember Mickelson won with that and we had great success with the Futura, which was kind of bizarre looking. It had a big uh, round horseshoe off the back. And we learned so much of MOI and performance from that. That putter kind of sat a little uh, wobbly and the sound was a little, but the performance was great. And so we go back to that putter and we look at what was great about it and what wasn't so great about it. And then uh, start to design things in and bring it to the tour and say, hey, what do you think? And start the commun communication that way. Right, um, cool. So for those who don't know, how did you get into designing putters? My father uh, loved classic golf clubs, Tommy Armour Woods, and he had a shop in the garage and he had all the tools and had a small tabletop mill. And um, he taught me how to mill blocks of aluminum, then put in heel and toe weights. We would go down to the tire store and get the old lead from the uh, balancing of tires and uh, heat them up in uh, coffee cans and pour the lead weight in and um, understand heel and toe weighting, then getting into shaft, as we we're talking earlier about face balance versus not face balance. And, you know, so since age nine with my father, he passed away when I was 13, but I continued 
from the love of designing and crafting putters in my garage and gave those away to touring pros that were actually friends on the mini tours in Southern California. And they ended up, you know, playing the tours and going, um, you know, great colleges, then ending up on the PGA tour and starting up friendships that way. And the word of mouth just took off, especially in 93 when Bernhard Langer won the masters with the Scotty Cameron putter that really was the big break uh, putting me on the map. Yeah, what did that do for the brand? Huge, because if you remember, LA, nobody uh, put names on putters. They were just kind of blank um, cast putters. And I couldn't advertise. I was a small little putter guy. And uh, I would stamp my name in the back cavity or down the back of the neck. And um, that caught views on the watching the masters and basically after that 93 masters i mean company started calling for me to design stuff for them or uh merge with them uh was that was really the defining moment of being at the right place at the right time with the right player and it all has worked out yeah i understand that the very next year it was peter costas who introduced you to walla uline the ceo of akushna at the time uh, and you joined up with Titleist. What was that all like? Yeah, so uh, I had my little putter company, and we were growing faster than fast. And um, as far as on the PGA Tour, we had more putters in play. And at that time, Elliot, it was really, it was ping. Then you had the bullseye. Then you had the Wilson 8802. And I wanted to do milled solid blocks of steel putters, not castings. Um I want to talk about feel, precision, performance for the best players in the world. And uh, Wally Uline um, was looking for a putter guy to take over for John Reuter, who was a bullseye putter guy. He had been with the company. He started late in his career. He was, I think, head of the PGA uh, section in kind of Scottsdale, Arizona, or Phoenix, Arizona. But he uh, was a tinker, and uh, a lot of the – Titleist rep, all reps, took that product on and saw to have a man behind the product. So eventually uh, they purchased the John Reuter Putter Company. And for years, Titleist was known for the bullseye putter. And when he passed away, they were looking for the next replacement for John Reuter. And Peter Costas and Wally were good friends. And Peter recommended, hey, you need to look at this guy. And Wally Uline set up a meeting and it was just like old friends talking about classic clubs and classic cars and the same interests. And that went as simple as, hey, do what you're doing. Let us do what you don't want to do and stay focused on what you do want to do because you're on the perfect track. So we merged companies and I became their putter guy. And even today when I wake up, I'm excited to talk about putters and players and materials and performance. So kind of a quick view of uh, the great Wally Uline who has retired, but uh, he's still around, but he's, uh, he's retired. And uh, one of the great minds of the golf industry with others like Carson Solheim and Ely Callaway, they have left their mark on the game and I'm proud to be a part of a Kushnet and to know Wally Uline. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing story. Um, so, the, so the Scotty Cameron putters, I've, um, I've had a few. I've got one in the bag now, and I absolutely love it. And and they're known for the incredible feel as well as um, the, the attention to detail, like the the three red dots, the crown, the dancing logo, and um, a lot of that stems from cars, does it? It does. You know, I find inspiration now it everywhere, and I love cars. And um, growing up, I uh, loved Volkswagens, a Southern California kid. And, and Volkswagen buses, Carmen Gias, and and even names of the product line right now came from Volkswagens, like the Squareback was their little station wagon, and they rounded off the back called a Fastback. We even had a big mallet of uh, Adam Scott. Uh, we named it the Combi. So a lot of the names and inspiration come from cars. Cars excite me, and I try to bring that same excitement to a putter in a smaller way. That's brilliant. So the red dots are they um, from the 
the races that you used to go and watch. Is that right? Yeah, my father in Orange County uh, would take me to Orange County International Raceway, which was a drag strip, which is now a uh, landing field in uh, El Toro, California. But he would take me and we loved uh, cars. He, he passionate about golf and cars and things. But I remember when uh, the cars would come out and get onto the track and get ready and doing their burnouts, the cars with the larger uh, things sticking out of the hood and the carburetors and uh, the butterflies uh, were the anodized three red little things you would see popping out of the carburetor. And when you saw that, you knew it was going to be fast. So that always, I remember the three red things sticking out of the carburetor um, was an excitement for me. So I, Machinist Inc. is red in color. And whenever I'd finish a few things for friends, I would put that color on there so I could tell that it was my putter because I was always looking for camera time on the tour to get noticed, whether it's a name stamped on the back like Scotty Cameron, Cameron Scotty, or one red dot or three red dots, um, like which would be sticking out of the carburetor. So, yeah, the inspiration um, it kind of fascinates me when it hits me now with all the cell phone use, I can pop out my camera, take a picture and remember things that, you know, I, I saw that um, I was inspired by or thought I could use or just thought it was cool. And yeah, the inspiration comes from everywhere. Uh, yeah. So one player that has uh, just a single red dot on their putter is a certain 15 time major winner, Tiger Woods. Uh, obviously started out with the Terillion putter in 1997 and then he went on to win 14 of his 15 majors with uh, with the, the elder ones that is known. So from starting in, in your garage to, to making a putter that's been used by one of the greatest of all time, how does that feel? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you hope, you know, just a, you're in your workshop, you're in your garage and you dream about where this putter that you're making today could end up. And whether it's, you know, a Brooks Kepka or Jordan Spieth or a Justin Thomas or um, a Tiger Woods, um, right place, right time with the right tools. And, and uh, I learned so much from him also. Tiger has a wonderful eye and uh, he doesn't send you on a wild goose chase. He knows what he wants. And it's my job to um, hopefully create something that he, he wants and likes and wants to use. And that's been the case and knock on wood, it's been a long time, but a uh, very successful friendship. Yeah, so over 30 majors uh, for, for the Scotty Cameron brand. Did you ever get tired of seeing your putters being used winning the biggest golf tournaments? Never, ever. Um, <laughs> like this past weekend, we had like five on the leaderboard, six out of 10 on the leaderboard. And that never gets old. And even from a, a simple blade like a Jordan Spieth uh, 009 that we did for him maybe, I don't know, 12 years ago that is looks like worn rustic leather all the way into a high-tech Phantom X uh, 12.5 was in the lead until uh, he had a ball in the water, a few guys were. But uh, we had a win this weekend. I enjoy that because when you work hard in the shop, that's your pat on the back when you have tour wins, like you're on track. And when you get a win, then a lot of guys take notice and want that same product. So it, you're just hoping to get that win. You pray to get that win. And when it happens, it's so rewarding. Yeah. Uh -huh. What are some of your favorite putters that you've designed over the years? Hmm. Well, the, uh, that Phantom that I, uh, we were talking about kind of had a big hot dog round thing on the back. That was very innovative. It wasn't very pretty. It wasn't very cool, but it sure worked like crazy. I think Mickelson, a lot of guys won with it, uh, but it really set the stage for future high-tech mallets of where we are today. So I love that product. I've always loved the Newport. Um, I'm a classic club guy, so my eye goes towards blades without pockets and cool factors of that nature. But, you know, I try to stay uh up on like the blades we don't do blades anymore like the bullseye blade and i did a coronado blade if we were to bring that style of putter out today simply it's like the old one iron you don't see one irons in the bag anymore and um 
it's kind of like that. So we call a Newport Newport II a blade now, where truly a blade back in the day was blade-y like a one iron. So I'm just trying to, you know, keep your finger on the pulse to try things, to show things. And the goal is to try to create the finest putters in the world for the finest players. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the Phantom X and the the brilliant yellow head cover. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. I've got, a, I've, got, I've got custom yellow grip on my uh, Newport 2 as well. Uh, but as well as the, the actual putter heads, you're, you're known for the head covers and the grips. Is that a lot of fun designing those? Yeah, Elliot. The, you know, when I was in high school, my now wife, we dated since I was 13, and uh, she was a seamstress. Uh, her mother was, and she would make me head covers for my drivers and putters to match my slacks when I was in high school. So, <laughs> I know, I know. It started way back then because I would spend so much time on these putters that I didn't want them dinged up in the day. You know, nobody, there wasn't a putter cover. Nobody used a putter cover. And I just thought, my gosh, I spend so much time making this look pretty and perfect. And the attention to detail, I put a cover on everything and then started to, you know, if a guy had a Wilson bag and a red color or a back then a green McGregor, or I tried to give them something to match their bags. And they always thought that that was clever and it kind of caught on. Then I uh, remember the old zebra putter had a matching grip and head cover. So I, uh, you know, kind of accessorizing, like when you get wake up and you put on black shoes and a black belt on your putter, you know, things should match. So I did a custom shop here uh, in my studio and uh, it has gotten so popular that I'm sitting here with Mike, our marketing guy, talking about how do we slow this down because they're coming in so fast. <laughs> customization of the putters is what I did for the PGA tour of the great players. And I thought, well, shouldn't everybody have that access or, or able to send it to us so we could do the cool red dots or blue dots or yellow grips or red grips or purple grips and stamp their initials on it. Like we do for the touring pro. So it was simply, I can say a J A T for just a thought, Hey, let's try this. And right now we're talking about how can we turn off that faucet to slow it down because we are so busy. And I, I'm not complaining whatsoever, but I do the very best job I can for even the average weekend golfer to treat that like a touring pro because it's so personal. Yeah, brilliant. Um, perhaps that is uh, a reason why your putters are, are such collectibles. I mean, uh, I remember we did a feature in the magazine within the last decade of uh, some clubs that collected your your stuff. Um, when did it dawn on you that your putters would become collectibles? Well, I wish, because I've collected putters, you know, all my life, because my father did. But somebody early on said, hey, you should start saving one of everything you do. And if I did that, I'd need a much bigger warehouse. Um, I didn't keep everything. I a little bit wish I uh, would have, but yeah, they have become not only the putters, but the head covers. I mean, there are, are putter and head cover collectors out there. And some of these collections are well over a million dollars. And wow. yeah. So to keep the name whole and never do anything to uh, interrupt that collector, I always want that collector to come back and say, this guy is doing it right. And I will continue to collect his products because he has stayed focused. He didn't cave in. He didn't go overseas um, to have products made. We make everything, Elliot, right here within a, a two mile radius around us where we have our milling factories, our assembly, our custom shop, our studio. And about seven miles away, I have a gallery where we sell some of these cool things that we create that really aren't uh, normal for the market when you work with uh, GSS, German stainless, or Damascus steel. And I like to create one-of-a-kind things. So we opened a gallery for fittings primarily because I wanted the average person to be able to get fit like a touring pro. Same system, same camera, same everything. But we did it for the public, and that has taken off like no tomorrow and we added one in tokyo hamamatsu and we have one in korea so st 
trying to stay focused, but uh, all is good. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah, I, sp I spoke to Bert Wiesberger last year, and he's got a, a large collection of Scotty Cameron putters. Um, which of your tour <laughs> players has got the biggest collection, would you say? I want to say it's uh, Hideki Matsuyama. He, uh, early on, was a Cameron fan when he was in school, then got into college, and our place, our studio, a uh, fitting studio in Hamamatsu, Japan, is where he would hang out. It's at a golf course, but it's a separate building. And it's a museum and gallery that was built for the Cameron stuff and the head covers and the putters. But Hideki has been coming there since he was 16. And he maybe gets the most putters made for him. He loves to be surprised with a new putter. He says it energizes him and gets him refocused and excited on something new. So he's always looking for the next greatest Scotty. So I'm going to say probably Hideki has one of the greatest collections, but there are a lot of the touring pros that, you know, collect head covers because for all the majors, we make them for them, put them in their lockers for simple thanks to say thanks for using us. So uh, yeah, between putters and head covers, um, that's a whole other story. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Hideki's uh, GSS isn't it, with the three black dots. Yeah, for example, you know that black dots. He wanted black, didn't want red. And you're right on track. He has three simple black bombs, black dots, whatever collectors call them. But he's had that in the back. So he, he tries everything. He's a mallet guy. He loves mallets. He'll switch every once in a while to something new that we give him. But he's loyal on that Newport 2 GSS with three black dots in the back. Yeah. Uh, what's it like working with Justin Thomas as well? Obviously, you brought out the the special JT putter last year. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of he and his fathers. They're really, really nice people. And I really enjoy working with nice people. Not demanding. He was just having, uh, I don't know, five years ago. that He's been coming in, uh, JT, since he was maybe 10 or 11. I've known him for that long, and he's grown up. But the putter he uses, the X5.5, is now one of the putters in the line. It doesn't have the weld around the lower neck area. I think it's cleaner without that weld. It is inside of the head under the sole plate, but it's one heck of a product. And my understanding from the marketing team, we just introduced that to the line extension of Phantom X. And it has just gone gangbusters. But to work with him, he was using a Newport 2, and he's having a tough time lining it up. So we were looking at mallets for him, and he said, you know, Mallet's track too square. He likes that arc that we were talking about. And he, uh, so we just went in the back workshop and uh, we milled down a neck and we welded the neck on. So we tried to get the same hang and toe flow of his new port too, but to get it in a mallet where we can have longer and bigger lines and a bigger sole to set more stable on the ground. So it's not flopping around. And it was just more of uh, working with him and his father and saying, okay, what are you feeling? What are you seeing? What can you line up and what do you stroke best? And experimenting and making things. And he walked out and uh, with that, that uh, X5.5 with that neck. And you know, that's another one of those of just creating something that takes off into the marketplace. And he has made it very popular. Yeah, fascinating. Um, last one. Can you comment on uh, the future of putter design? Are you going to be using 3D printers? Is it new technologies, new uh, materials? What's it going to be? Yes, yes. We use 3D uh, now, which is a time saver for me because I can have an idea and I can work with uh, my engineering department. And before we even make or mill a metal head, we can actually print it in 3D and I can grind your shape on that uh, plastic uh, wax piece then recalibrate, then before we even make one in metal, uh, we have a pretty good idea of what it's going to look like and what the wall thicknesses are, where the MOI is. So we use that technology now, but if we went back 15 years, we didn't have that or couldn't afford that. So times are changing, but what I do like, the USGA governs on how crazy we could go because we could simply set down a tripod, Elliot, where you take it back and it's more of a robot doing it. But the 
It's governed by the USGA on what we can do. And every year they come with new rules and regulations to keep crazy putter makers like myself in check so we don't go haywire and create things that a spaceship's on the putting grain. So I think the future is going to be of materials because we're a little bit governed on the size and the height and the length and all that. So how creative can you be with a blank canvas that you putt with to stay within the guidelines of the USGA uh, rules? So we always follow their rules. Where I try to always be at the peak of those rules. I kind of my job to uh, make sure that we are, you know, ultimate performance, but never crossing the line to be non-conforming. Oh, fascinating. Scott Cameron, thank you very much for your time. Elliot, it's been a pleasure. Uh, let me know if I can ever uh, be of help with you. If you have any questions on putters, you got my number. So welcome back. Fantastic interview you did there, Elliot, with Scotty Cameron. How, how was it to uh, talk to the great man? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was brilliant. I was actually a little bit nervous. I don't know if listeners could tell there, but I've been a, a Scotty fan pretty much since I've been a golfer. You know, they're such desirable products. I mean, I use one now. I've used three, I think, in the past. So, yeah, he's uh, a real legend of the game such a legendary brand and uh yeah it's an honor to speak to him he's such a great guy very funny just incredibly intelligent and yeah just so much technology and and insight goes into making these putters and uh a, a life well lived from him i mean starting in the garage making putters with his dad to, to making putters for major winners and one of the best players of all time in tiger woods is uh yeah a fascinating story and uh, i hope everybody enjoyed it yeah, it's it's really good. It's something slightly different, you know. When you when you talk to these these legendary club manufacturers, you know, we obviously always usually hear from tour players, and it's great to get a, another side of their story. And golf's got so many of these these different individuals and characters around the game, so it's great. And well done for for getting that. It was uh, it was really good. So I hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, let us know on our social media channels at Golf Monthly on Twitter and Instagram and Golf Monthly Magazine on Facebook. What's your favourite Scotty Cameron putter? I know there's some people out there who get very, very excited about Scotty Cameron. So let us know your favourites and um, we'll make sure to give them a retweet or something like that. So moving on to this week. And it's quite a big week at Riviera for the Genesis Invitational, where Adam Scott defends the title we won last year. The likes of Dustin Johnson, Roy McIlroy, John Rahm, Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, Justin Thomas, Sander Chauflay and Colin Morikawa all feature in a really stacked field. Tiger Woods will be there, but he'll be a non-playing host this week. Who do you fancy out of that huge array of talent to come through the pack and win this week? Oh, loads of them. I mean, Justin Thomas went well, I remember, a couple of years ago. McElroy's held the 54-hole lead here. John Rahm, best player in the world for me, who, um, you know, hasn't quite got going in 2021 as he would have liked to. Dustin Johnson, fresh off his win in Saudi. Um, yeah, just just stacked. Obviously, Kepka as well, one in Phoenix. And Xander Schofle has been the form player over the last sort of two years without winning, which... It's, it's a real surprise that he hasn't won. It must be starting to annoy him a little bit. But I, I quite like the look of Victor Hovland as well. He's been in fantastic form, albeit pretty decent odds. So, yeah, he, he could be due what would be an absolutely huge victory for him in, in a Ryder Cup year. And also like Max Homer as well, who went well last year and um, went well last week as well. I knew you were going to say Victor Hovland. I just knew. <laughs> I knew that was okay. I was just, I was, uh, just looking. I've got the odds in front of me here. And I was like, oh, Victor Hovland, he's like 33 to 1. It's like, that is decent price. I know it's a very, very strong field. And when you've got the likes of DJ, you know, DJ's 11 to 2. You know, Rahm and Rory are 12s. You know, you never get them double figures. So um, there's some decent value out there, unless DJ wins, of course. Um, I think Victor Hovland's a good shout. I also like Hideki Matsuyama, who uh, I think finished fifth there last year. He's on a, you know, he hasn't really got... He hasn't really fired over the last year or so when he was playing so well around 2016, 20, 2017. But uh, I think this is the kind of course which should suit his fantastic ball striking. So he's also pretty decent odds at, again, 33 to 1. So I the look of him. And I've got to say Tony Finau as well. Because oh, yeah, of course. He's 25 to 1. He's going to win one day, isn't he? 
you, you would think. His, his last, just looking at his last, last five tournaments, he's finished eighth, 31st, fourth, second, second. He's had nine seconds since his last win, uh, according to the World Rankings website. So uh, he's 25 to one. Again, the good odds, but just keep an eye on him. Keep an eye on him. He's going to win. I feel really bad. If I if I don't mention him and he does win, I'm going to feel gutted. Um, so, um, yeah, there it is. So, um, for the, our full betting tips on the Genesis Invitational, do go to golfmonthly.com and check out our betting tips or just Google it. You should be able to find them as well. Elliot, anything else to say? Um, I love Riviera, I'll say that. But... It always depresses me seeing that par three where it's got all the dead trees. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yes. Where's yeah, this why don't they just get some evergreen trees? Um, I have no idea. I'm, I, I think it, I would think, you know, they, they want to fit it in with the natural surroundings of the area. Um, I don't know, mate. I don't know. Maybe evergreens don't, don't grow there. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, fantastic course. And uh, one that I've, Probably preferred of all the golf courses on PGA Tour 2K21. That is, um, yeah, it's got some brilliant green complexities. Uh, the 10th hole, the par 4, is one of the best holes in the world. And uh, it's got a really good finishing hole as well. So, yeah, great course, great history, great part of the world, and an even better field. So, fantastic week ahead of us. Awesome. I look forward to it. So check us out next week, see uh, who wins at Riviera, see if we were right. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review if you get a chance to. And for all the latest from the golf world, check out golfmonthly.com and follow us on social media. Until next week, we'll speak to you then. Bye.